Well, good morning again. Thank you so much uh, for being here. You know, I want to tackle a, a heavy topic uh, this morning. It's the topic of, of membership. You know, I just kind of figured if, if you come the Sunday after Easter, you're semi-serious about your faith. And so we're just going to go ahead and take the commitment level up just a little bit. So congratulations, you're here. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I've been, I was thinking this week, uh, one of our mission partners who I cannot name for security reasons was in a country that I cannot name for security reasons. And that country is 99.9% .9 Muslim. And two weeks ago, he did a training over there and did 10 baptisms, 10 baptisms. Yeah, it is, as far as I know, it's very likely the largest number of baptisms at one time in that country for a long, long time. And so God is moving all over the world. And I think about Christians all over the world and what they're going through to live out their faith. And so when we come to the topic of membership, this should not be a hard topic for us. Uh, we live in a country that gives us so many freedoms and how we can live out and express our faith and worship freely. And yet sometimes when we come to this topic of membership, uh, we, we just kind of back away. Because at its core, membership is about commitment. It's a commitment to God. And it's a commitment to God's people to be a part of a local expression of the universal body of Christ. It's about banding together with other people in all of its messiness. But it's a commitment at its core. A commitment to a father who loves us, a son who has saved us, and the Holy Spirit who sets us free. And then we do that in community with others. But it seems like commitment and, number one, making a commitment, but even keeping a commitment, seems to be the practice of a bygone error. It seems like we come to this word, we come to this challenge of being committed, um, and we're not really sure what to do with it. Because as it plays out in our lives sometimes, it's as if any whim of dissatisfaction that we may have sends us into this internal plummet that actually just leads to self-deception where we start convincing ourselves um, that, well, I need a change. I just need a, a newer model of something, right? And we say it, and we say, well, surely, you know, it's something wrong with them, or my, it's something wrong with my environment. Nothing is ever wrong with us. But commitment rests on our shoulders. Commitment is our challenge. And if you're a Christian today, I really just want to talk to the Christians who are in the room, the Christians who are watching online and on television. I really want to speak to you. So if you claim to be a Christian you really say, you know, I believe in Jesus. He died for my sins. He rose for my salvation. Okay, good. I'm talking to you this morning. So you might just want to take a deep breath. Because we have to wrestle with some questions. Questions like, do I want to be a spectator? Or do I want to be a saint? We have to wrestle with questions like, do I want to be a consumer? Or do I want to live commissioned? in the world. We have to ask questions like, do I just want to be entertained on Sundays? And I will give whoever stands on stage a grade, whether I like it or not. Or do I want to exalt the living God? We have to ask questions like, do I want to be and live in community? Or do I just want to be a part of a crowd? Hopefully a popular one. 
We have to ask questions like, do I really want to be in connection with other flesh and blood people or do I just want casual acquaintances, but no one gets too close? We have to ask ourselves, do I want to be real with people, the people who God has placed in my life? Do I want to be real with people or do I just want to manage my reputation and manage people's perception of me? See, these are real questions that if you're a Christian, you have to ask yourself. We live in the South. I say this all the time because it's so true. It is so easy to be a cultural Christian, but if you're gonna be a real follower of Jesus, you have to ask these kinds of hard questions. We have to ask questions like, is membership a right that I have or is it a responsibility that I have to God, to my family, to other people, and then to me? Is it a right or a responsibility for me? You see, until these questions are settled, you're gonna spend your life faith-flopping and church-hopping the rest of your life. That's all you're gonna do. But here at Fraser, we believe that there are some commitments that we have to make, there are some beliefs we have to hold, and there is a life that God has called us to live. And the question is, what are those? What does that look like? What are the commitments that God has called us to make? What are the beliefs that we hold? And what is the life that God has called us to live? That's what I wanna flesh out for you today. I wanna start with membership questions. I wanna start with the commitments that we have to make. The first one is this. And here's what, and by the way, I wanna say, no one can make this commitment for you. But please hear me. No one can make this commitment for you. This is something that you and you alone only you and you alone can make, okay? So the first one is this. The first membership question we ask people, I'm gonna put it in sentence form, it's I reject the forces of evil. Repent of my sins, my sins, they're personal, they're mine, it's not just systemic, it's my sins. And confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Here's the thing about this first one, this first question that we ask people whenever they're joining the church. Uh, the thing about this one is you cannot fake this for long. You cannot fake this for long. You can say, yeah, sure, I believe that. Oh, absolutely, I believe that. But the choices we make and how we live our life always brings this commitment to light, whether or not it is true in our life. And to be an authentic follower of Jesus means that we believe that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. He saves us from our sins, yes, absolutely. But he's also Lord of our life as we live life. Those two things have to go together. You hear me say it all the time. We believe that Jesus died. He really died. He really rose from the dead. But he's also Lord of our life. And it means he rules over all of it. And so the first commitment that we have to make is we have to come to this place where we say, you know, everything starts here. Everything starts with this moment where I really do believe that there's a thing called evil in this world and I reject that. I repent of my sins. They're not anybody else's. They're mine. I'm gonna own them. That, 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 is, that is the nature of confession. A good definition for confession simply is I call it what God calls it. And so they're my sins, but I'm gonna confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Everything begins there. The second one, the second point here, is that I commit to follow Jesus by being a faithful member of his body, the church, that's the universal church, and to Fraser as the local church where I am called to serve. 
See, it is our conviction that when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, that we are part of the universal body of Christ. But he has called each and every person to live in and with a local church and live out their faith with people, real flesh and blood people. And again, all the messiness that comes with that, to live that out in the place where God has placed us. So many times people will say things like, I love God or I really like Jesus. I just don't want anything to do with organized religion, for example. To say that, if you're a Christian, I'm talking to Christians today, by the way. If you're a Christian and you say that, you say that you have a serious misunderstanding of New Testament Christianity. I'm sorry. I mean, that whole idea that I can really be cool with Jesus and just not like the church is, is nowhere in Scripture, Old or New Testament. And so we have to come to this place where we make this commitment. I'm committed to Jesus. He is Savior. He is Lord. But I'm also committed to the place where he has called me, and he has called me to serve there. You see, we believe when first, at First Peter, where it says, we're the priesthood of all believers, we believe that. We believe in James 2, 26, when James says that faith without works is dead. It's dead faith. That is true. We are called to serve in some way. We're called to get our hands dirty. We're called to do something with our faith. I was talking with someone a while back, and they were talking about how they wish their faith meant more to them. And they were like, I, I believe, I have this faith, it just, it, it's just not a top priority in my life. And I'll never forget, I was just kind of listening and let them talk themselves toward a conclusion, you know? And I'll never forget it. They, they said, my faith does not mean more to me because I don't do more with my faith. I don't do anything with the faith I already have. Faith is meant to be active in our lives. It does something because God has called us to serve. And so many times we beg God for more faith when we do not use the faith that we do have already. So the first commitment is to Jesus. He is Savior. He is Lord. The second commitment is to a local expression of that, whether that's here or wherever that is. And no one can make those commitments for you. The second set of questions, there's two, or statements, are the beliefs that we hold. And I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you, these are not popular. They're not popular at all, but we believe in the authority and the power of these two things. The first one is that I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and my final authority in all matters of faith and practice. And I will strive to fully align my thoughts, words, and actions to God's truth. Again, that is not a popular thing today. And people will say, Chris, you really believe that? I absolutely really believe that. And I've been called all kind of names for it. And people say I'm backwards or I'm ignorant or I'm not enlightened or whatever. And the truth is, I don't care at all, at all. And so what God calls us to is to understand that his word is the final authority, not your thoughts, not your ideas, but his word is the final authority for faith and practice. And what we are called to do is to fully align our thoughts, words, and actions with God's word. And, and do we do that perfectly all the time? Absolutely not. But whenever we fall down, we get back up and we keep moving forward. We keep moving forward. The second belief that we have is that I believe that the Holy Spirit empowers believers to love and serve God and others. And I will embrace the transforming work of the Spirit to set me free from sin for joyful obedience. 
God has called us not only to see his word, but we need power in order to live his word. We need power to align our thoughts, words, and actions to his word. And that power we have by the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. It's not willpower. It's not our power. It's God's power at work in us. He is the one that transforms us, sets us free from sin, but he sets us free for joyful obedience. Listen, Christians should be the most joyful people on the planet. We should not walk around look like we've been sucking on a lemon or whatever. I mean, we, we should understand the joy. If God has set you free by the blood of Jesus on the cross, raised to life on the third day, you have resurrection power in you. You should have a smile on your face quite often. Yeah? Just give me a smile now. Just help me out. Thank you. Thank you. But we believe these two things. We believe in the word of God. And we believe that the Holy Spirit transforms our lives and helps us live the Word of God. Those are commitments that no one can make for us and beliefs that no one can hold for us. But then there's a way we live. There's a lifestyle that we're called to live that no one else can live for us. And there are values and practices that we have. There's six of them. The first one is this. The first value and practice is that I participate regularly in congregational worship. I participate regularly in congregational worship. It was the psalmist who said in Psalm 35 verse 18, I will thank you in the great congregation. God, I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. That word throng there means a densely packed crowd. Over and over what we see throughout scripture is the people of God going and worshiping collectively. We've gotten into this, uh, we've tried to individualize so many things in our life uh, that we just think, I just need me and I just need God. No, 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 we need each other because when we come together in worship, we do three things. Number one, when we come together in worship, it is a witness to the world. When saved sinners sing songs about the Savior, that's a lot of S's, I know, but when we do, it is a testimony about who this Christ is, who the Messiah is. See, I mean, the very fact that your car is parked in the parking lot right now and people are driving by seeing your car is a testimony to who God is. So it is a witness to the world. Not only that, when we come in and when we worship together, we encourage other brothers and sisters in Christ. We actually need each other. And the, when we come in and when we sing, we encourage each other's faith. And then lastly, whenever we come in and worship with other people, it reorients our lives back to who God is. The truth is, is we drift more in six days than what we want to admit out loud. And it reorients us back to who this Messiah really is. And so we believe that part of what we are called to practice is to regularly, I'll let you interpret that how you want to, regularly participate in congregational worship. That God calls us to himself in these moments and he does powerful things. That's why we want our worship to be as participatory as possible. This is not just a sage on the stage and entertainers up here with you know, guitars and stuff just to make you like the performance. No, we come together and we are lifting our voices and we are worshiping the one true God who we claim has set us free for joyful obedience, right? So the first thing is there is we participate regularly in congregational worship. The second thing is that I practice personal disciplines of spiritual growth through prayer and scripture. I practice personal disciplines. That word discipline is so important if we're gonna see the spiritual growth that we say we long for. 
In Psalm chapter 1, David is talking about the blessed man or woman. The blessed man, what does that look like? In Psalm 1, 2, he says, The blessed man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's what it means to be blessed. And then we get the calling from Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, to pray without ceasing. That does not mean you're walking around or driving around with your eyes closed. It means that we are constantly in a state of prayer, and we, we don't have to like work ourselves up to get back into it because we do it so regularly. We're to live in this place where we're meditating on the law of the Lord. We're in God's word, and we're also living in this relationship that is a living relationship with a living God. And we want that because we know that the discipline of living into that is what helps us grow. So many times we want to, you know, we want to grow stronger, but the question we have to ask ourselves is, when was the last time I went to a prayer meeting? Or we say, I want to know more. I want to understand more about God. I want to know God more. When's the last time you went to a Sunday school class or a small group? Like we say these things out loud, like, you know, just like, yeah, I'd really like to know a little more about it, but I'm not doing anything. Right? It's like our words and our lives, our actions, they don't line up. And we just deceive ourselves in those moments. Today, we want microwave religion with bumper sticker faith. We, we just say, Chris, give me a pithy statement that I can remember, and then I'm going to hang everything on that. And then we wonder why, when, our, when, when things get a little hard, we buckle under the weight. We wonder why. And so here's what we do. Here's what we do. When things get a little hard in our life and our faith is not strong, when things get a little hard, we have to take that thing that is a little hard and make it into a really big deal. Because if we can make it into a really big deal, people won't know how weak we really are. I'll let you think about that one. I I practice personal disciplines, disciplines, disciplines so that I can grow through prayer and scripture. Number three, I'm connected to a group for mutual care and accountability. We believe this. We believe that you need some people in your life. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I noticed that line. This is one of the most challenging lines in the New Testament to me. It says, let us consider. The word consider means to think through thoroughly, okay? Consider means you think through thoroughly how, how you will stir up love and good works in another brother or sister in Christ. Do you hear how challenging that is? It means for like five minutes you have to stop being selfish and thinking about yourself. And then you have to think through how am I going to stir up love and good works in my real flesh and blood brother or sister in Christ? When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you paused long enough in the busyness of life to think through how for this sister or this brother that's in my life, how in the world can I stir up love and good works in them? Wow, what a challenge. And we're called to do that for each other. He goes on. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some have a habit of doing. It was a, you know, church attendance was a problem in the first century too. He says, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice he says, I really want you to pause and think through thoroughly how you can stir up each other to love and good works. And he says, guys, this is only going to happen if you actually show up, right? 
And he says, when you show up, though, here's what I want you to do. I want you to have a sense of urgency in you that I really need to get, get about the business of stirring other brothers and sisters in Christ up to love and good works because the day is drawing near. He says, think about it. Jesus is coming back. There needs to be a sense of urgency in you about living this out with other believers. That's why we connect to a group, mutual care and accountability. So many times what we want in life is we want an echo chamber. We want people around us who will just tell us exactly what we want to hear. And the problem is, if we live life with an echo chamber around us, if that's all we have, we're never going to become more than the stagnant, stale version of our current self. We're never going to grow. Never going to grow. You know, it, it, listen, people have asked me the question, Chris, how did you grow in your faith? Not like, how do you grow in general, but how did you grow? How did I grow in my faith? Part of the answer, I've been thinking about this recently. Part of the answer is this. Please hear me here. Part of the answer is this. When I was an 18-year-old and I went to Bible study, I went to Bible study with 40, 50, and 60-year-olds. That's part of how I grew fast, I think, as a young believer. When I was an 18-year-old, I went to Bible study with 40, 50, and 60-year-olds. Did I agree with everything they were saying? No. Were, were we in the same stage of life? Why, Lord, no. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I needed wisdom. The last thing I needed as an 18-year-old was another 18-year-old's perspective. I already had that, right? <laughs> it was jacked up. I already had that, right? Same thing. I encourage people. We talk about this. I want people in my same stage of life and stuff. Yeah, you need people in your same stage of life. Absolutely. You need those people in your life. But I encourage you need to group up a level. If you're in your 20s, find some 30-year-olds to be around. You need wisdom, not friends. If you're in your 30s, find someone who's in their 40s. If you're in your 40s, find a Sunday school class in the 50s. 50s, find somebody in your 60s. 60s, find somebody in your 70s. 70s, find somebody in your 80s. 80s, find somebody in your 90s. If you're in your 90s, congratulations. <laughs> the next graduations, you know. Eternity. Listen, we talk about being in a group, mutual care and accountability. You, you need wisdom. Find some older people and ask them, can I just be a part of this Bible? Can I be a part? Will you mentor me? So important. Because again, you, you don't need another your perspective. You need wisdom to live. Number four, I give sacrificially to support the mission and ministry of the church in proportion to my income, I give sacrificially. And here's where you go, oh no, the preacher's talking about tithing. <laughs> actually, I'm not, it's far worse. <laughs> I'm actually not talking about tithing. Tithing's a given. That's where you know God gives you 100% of everything that you make. He lets you keep 90 and he asks for 10. That's what a tithe is, 10% of your income. You say, Chris, is it net or gross? Pray about it, I don't know. You know? So we say, uh, tithing is a given. So I'm not talking about tithing. I'm talking about generosity. See, generosity is something different. Giving sacrificially is something different. And we're not called to live the minimum. That's, again, tithing. That's a given. We're called to live sacrificial lives. Like Jesus didn't go to the cross and it's like, I'm gonna lay down some of myself for you 
right? No, it's all available for however the Father wanted to use it. You see, whenever we give sacrificially, whenever we give generously, we are actually reflecting, reflecting the extravagant love of the Father. And listen, I know, I get it. I get it. It's like, I don't want the preacher to talk about money. You know why? Because it's an idol in our life. Oh, oh, it's just such an idol. It has such a hold on us in our life. And it, it, it dictates how we live our life in so many ways. And whenever you give and you do so sacrificially and generously, it just breaks the power that money has over you every time. And it reflects the extravagant love of the Father. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is talking about the church in Macedonia. And he says this, he says, we want you to know, brothers, he said, I really want you to know something about the grace of God. Notice that's where he starts. He said, I want to tell you about some people who understand the grace of God. They're in Macedonia. He says, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means. Absolutely, that's a given. As I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Paul's out. I didn't twist their arm. But notice he starts with the grace of God. He says they understand, they've experienced the grace of God, and that's what fuels them to live sacrificially in generous lives so that others may benefit. And right now is about that point where you're saying, I wish he would get off the money point, right? So number five. I thought that was funny, but... <laughs> I'm... I'm engaged in serving, number five, I'm engaged in serving others through at least one area of ministry. I believe God has at least somewhere for you to serve, somewhere. There's at least one place, and you have at least one gift, although I would say more. First Peter 4.10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. See, part of your calling is to serve within the church. And notice he says, serve one another. He's, that's not like, hey, go somewhere in the world and serve somebody. No, he's speaking to a church about the church. He says, you are called, you have been gifted by the grace of God as good stewards of God's varied grace. You've been gifted by the grace of God to serve other people. And we believe that everybody has a place to serve. What Satan does is he does judo on us. Uh, what he, you know what judo is, right? They use your momentum against you. That, that's exactly what Satan does when it comes to our callings. And we get so specific about our callings, right? We say, I'm called to serve 26 to 27 and eight-month-old uh, people, and I'm called to do that um, on Tuesday morning at 7.43 for seven minutes, and I'm going to teach them underwater basket weaving. So, Lord, this, I just really have discerned my calling. You know, if someone is like 27.9 months, I'll pray about letting them be a part of this. I'm really not sure. But that's who I'm called to serve. This is when I'm called to serve. This is what we're going to do. It's going to be about seven minutes long. So, Lord, if you want me to serve, you just kind of make that happen. And then we wonder why we're disappointed. Because we've lost the understanding of serving. 
You see, when you serve someone else, when you serve, when God directs and you serve, it's always inconvenient. It always is. But we are called to be the hands and feet of Christ. We're called to be the mouthpiece of Christ. We're called to serve one another. And that's why it's inconvenient so many times. You know, if you just want to serve on your terms and in your timing, you actually don't want to serve. You just want a pet project to pat yourself on the back about. Because serving people is always inconvenient. Leaving the glory of heaven and coming to earth to incarnate so that Jesus could die for the sins of the world was not a very convenient thing. And he says, as I have come to serve, not be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many, he says, so I'm sending you into the world. And so we believe everybody has a place. Number six, I seek opportunities to join in God's mission to reach the world with his love. The verse we've been living with this whole year as we've been in a year of missions is Matthew 28, 19 through 20, where he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I believe that whole, both of those verses, 19 and 20, are for you that you're called to live out that great commission, every bit of it, actually, the whole thing. And part of our job is we have got to see that God's evangelistic strategy to save humanity is you. It's like, God, what's your plan? And God's like, I'm looking at him. I'm looking at her. It's me and you. It's like, well, I'm just waiting for the Lord to lead me. He said, go, <laughs> right? He said, go. And we believe that we're to be a part of that. This is what it means to be a member. And I think this is important to clarify for this reason. I had a conversation a little while ago with someone in this church. And they said this to me. They said, you know, I thought church, the church existed to make me feel good about myself and entertain me. And that being a member meant I got to tell the church when it did not do those two things. That is not membership. And so I preached the sermon on this morning to clarify this is who we are. This is like we actually believe this stuff. And we're going to hold to it. And I tell you all this because I'm your pastor and I love you. Again, I'm just talking to Christians in the room, okay? I'm just talking to Christians online and on television. But we actually believe this. And here's the thing. If we really are a Christian, it means that we have been justified by faith through grace. That word justified means it, I have a relationship with God. All my sins have been washed away. I am now living in his righteousness. And what I know about Christians is that we will either live out our justification or we will spend our lives trying to justify why we don't. just making excuse after excuse. It's when you get in that place where you have to like create an argument to let yourself off the hook in some way and being obedient to God, you're just justifying. And God has called us to so much more. God has called you to so much more. And that's what I want to pray into. 
This is not just my name gets on a roll, I give a little, pay my dues, and no, you're called to be a part of the army of God with other brothers and sisters who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And he wants you. Not just be a spectator, not just be on the sidelines, but to be on the front lines. So Father, would you help us say yes to that invitation? Would you help us not be content with, with just giving lip service to the service you've called us into? Father, I pray that you would forgive us for the moments that we would rather have a cool church over a holy God. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for the moments when we've bought into the culture instead of the calling that you have placed on our life. May we truly be the people, the blood-bought people that you sent your son to die for us to be.